Hello, listeners. This is Mike, your host. If you are enjoying these archive episodes, please consider supporting the podcast by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Hopefully, with your support, I can continue to release these archive episodes. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. You got speed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. I feel uh, Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 160 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 8, The Decision. An Apollo 8 lunar orbital mission was not part of the original schedule of flights. The first formal discussions of the mission began on September 20, 1967, when George Lowe and others met with top manned space flight officials in Washington, D.C., to present the center's plan, the key features of which was the need for additional lander and Saturn V developmental flights and the incorporation of an Apollo 8-style lunar orbital flight in the schedule. The chief of the Lunar Module Engineering Office, Owen Maynard, presented plans for scheduling seven types of missions that would lead step-by-step to the ultimate goal. He described these steps A through G as follows. An A-type mission would be flown with a Saturn V and be used to test the launch vehicle, spacecraft, and a high-velocity lunar return. NASA covered the A mission with Apollo 4 and 6. A B-type mission would be flown with a Saturn 1B and test the lunar module development and propulsion and launch vehicle staging. This was accomplished with Apollo 5. A C-type mission would be flown with a Saturn 1B and test the command and service module and evaluate the crew performance in low Earth orbit. This was accomplished with Apollo 7. A D-type mission would be flown with either a Saturn 1B or a 5 to evaluate the lunar module, command and service modules, and crew performance in low Earth orbit. An E-type mission would be flown with a Saturn 5 and used to evaluate command, service, and lunar modules in high Earth orbit and last up to 11 days. An F-type mission would be flown with a Saturn V and used for lunar orbit evaluation of the lunar module. And finally, the G-type mission would be a landing on the moon. Continuing with the meeting, Apollo program manager Phillips asked that the group consider carefully 
both the pros and cons of flying an additional Saturn V flight. Werner von Braun and George Lowe favored the flight. Von Braun because he felt the launch operations people would need the experience, and Lowe because he believed that data from several flights would be needed to make certain that the big booster was indeed ready for its flight to the moon. Against these opinions, Phillips cited the tremendous workload an added flight would place on the pre-flight crews at Kennedy, and George Miller reminded the meeting of the already crowded launch schedule for 1968. An additional lunar module mission would be flown only if lunar module number one was unsuccessful. But most discussions centered on the insertion of an Apollo 8-style lunar orbital flight into the schedule. Houston wanted to evaluate deep space environment and to develop procedures for the entire lunar landing mission short of the lunar module descent, ascent, and surface operations. Miller remarked that he regarded the lunar orbit mission as just as hazardous as the landing mission, but the Texas group argued that they had no intention of flying the vehicle closer to the moon than 15 kilometers. They pointed out that the crew would not have to train for the actual landing, but it would give them a chance to develop the procedures for getting into lunar orbit and undocking and for rendezvous that the lunar landing crew would need. Miller said Apollo should not go to the moon to develop procedures, but Lowe reminded him that crew operations would not be the main reason for the trip. There was still a lot to be learned about communications, navigation, and thermal control in deep space. Although a final decision on the lunar orbital mission was not made until later, Owen Maynard's seven-step plan was generally adopted throughout NASA. Plenty of wrinkles remained to be ironed out, but by the end of 1967, Apollo seemed to be rounding the corner toward its ultimate goal, despite the most tragic event that manned U.S. spaceflight had encountered so far. Almost as soon as NASA adopted Owen Maynard's alphabetical stairway for reaching the moon in progressive flights, with the seventh, or G, step representing the ultimate goal, mission planners had begun looking for ways to omit a letter. In late 1967, when the ABC scheme evolved, George Lowe and Flight Operations Director Chris Kraft had pushed for a lunar orbital mission as soon as possible to learn more about communications, navigation, and thermal control in deep space. In the spring of 1968, Apollo officials in Houston were trying to upgrade the E mission, operating the command module and the lander in high Earth orbit, into something called E prime which would move the mission to the vicinity of the moon. But, by August, Gilruth and others had concluded that Lunar Module Number 3 would not be ready for flight that year. This finding left NASA with two excellent command modules, 
101 and 103, but no lunar module could be manned in 1968. Lowe reasoned that the Saturn V-503 and the Command Service Module 103 might be used for a circumlunar or lunar orbit flight. Lowe kept his own counsel for a while, waiting for the Saturn V Pogo problem to be resolved. Then, on August 7th, Lowe asked Chris Kraft to work out a flight plan for such a mission during 1968. This is how Kraft described the event in his book titled Flight, My Life in Mission Control. George Lowe entered my office and said, Chris, I've got an idea about the moon. Do you have time to see Bob Gilruth with me? We walked down the hall to Gilruth's office. Bob was expecting us, and George started by going through a laundry list of lunar module problems. He didn't see any way that we could have an all-up stack Saturn V topped with a command and service module and a lunar module before February or March 1969. There had been some problems with the big Saturn V in the two unmanned test flights also, but those seemed to be under control. Finally, he got to the point. What do you think about flying to the moon without a lunar module? If Apollo 7 does okay in October, can we juggle the schedule to fly a crew to the moon and back in December? His idea was a shocker. Gilruth leaned forward, elbows on his desk, and asked for more details. What kind of lunar mission? Just out and back, a circumlunar trip? Yes, that's what I'm thinking, George Lowe said. It would ace the Russians and take a lot of pressure off Apollo, and we have to go there sooner or later anyway. I don't think it makes much sense to fly twice in Earth orbit if we can go around the moon. Gilruth reached for his phone. We've got to get Deke Slayton in here. Once Slayton arrived, the meeting continued. Chris, can you get the control center, the controllers, and the software ready for December? Deke, what about a crew? Can you give us a trained crew in four months? Deke was both quick and careful. Yeah, I think so, but Chris and I need to look at it real careful. Give us a day. Take two, Gilruth said. In the hallway, Deke was almost bouncing with anticipation. I think I'll have to do some crew swapping. I gotta make some calls. End quote. On August 9th, George Lowe informed MSC Director Gilruth about his ideas for a lunar orbit mission. Gilruth, too, was enthusiastic, and he and Lowe started calling Washington, Huntsville, and the Cape to set up a meeting that same afternoon at Marshall. Lowe next talked to Kraft, who said the mission was feasible from a ground control and spacecraft computer standpoint. Gilruth, Lowe, Kraft, and Flight Crew Operations Director Deke Slayton then boarded a plane for Huntsville. At 2.30 p.m., they were joined by Kennedy Director Kurt DeBoos, Rocco Patron, Program Manager Phillips and George Haig. They were met by Werner von Braun, Eberhard Rees, Luddy G. Richard, 
and Lee James. Lowe said that a lunar orbit mission, if it could be flown in December, might be the only way to meet the fast-approaching lunar landing deadline. This remark sparked a lively discussion. The talk was mostly about what each of the NASA elements would have to do to make the mission possible in the time remaining. DeBoose and Patron considered Kennedy's workload and concluded they could be ready by December 1. When Brown, Reeves, James, and Richard reported that they had nearly solved the POGO problem, and Lowe and Gilruth talked about the differences between command modules 103 and 106 and what to use as a substitute for the lander. Even as he joined in the discussion, Apollo Program Director Phillips had been taking notes. He said they should keep their plans secret until a decision was made by NASA's top officials. In the meantime, while gathering whatever information was needed, they would use the code name SAM's Budget Exercise as a cover. The group would meet in Washington on August 14th, Decision Day. Administrator James Webb and Miller would be in Vienna attending the United Nations Conference on the Exploration and Peaceful Uses of Outer Space at that time. If the Washington meeting decided in favor of the lunar orbit mission, Phillips would fly to Austria to sell the idea to Webb and Miller. In Houston, at 8.30 that evening, Lowe met with spacecraft chiefs Kenneth Kleinick and Bolander, technical assistant George Aby, and North American Apollo manager Dale Myers. Kleinick began studying the differences between spacecraft 103 and 106. Spacecraft 106 was the first spacecraft originally scheduled to go to the moon. Kleinick needed to compare the two spacecraft to determine what changes needed to be made so spacecraft 103 could go to the moon. Bolander left for Bethpage to find a substitute for Lunar Module 3, and Myers went back to Downey to make sure that the Command Module 103 was moving along and to oversee any changes Kleinick recommended. Joseph Katanchik, structures expert in Houston, could not see any reason for Bolander's trip to Bethpage. A simple crossbeam could be used for weight and balance, he said, but Kachanchik found himself alone in his position. Others believed that a true facsimile should be carried, and Lowe decided on a lunar test article. Early on Monday morning, August 12th, Kraft told Lowe that the target date would have to be December 20th if they wanted to launch in daylight. If the flight had to be terminated for any reason shortly after launch, good visibility was necessary for recovering the spacecraft. In the meantime, Slayton had been thinking about which crew to pick for the flight. Frank Borman's team had been training for a high-altitude mission. Slayton talked with Borman over the weekend and decided to propose that crew at the meeting in Washington. The 12 men who had gathered in Huntsville were joined by William Snyder and Julian Bowman when they met with Deputy Administrator Thomas Payne at headquarters on Wednesday, August 14th. 
George Lowe reviewed spacecraft status. Chris Kraft discussed flight operations, and Deke Slayton talked about flight crew preparations. Von Brown reported that the Saturn could be ready for the launch, and he and Eberhard Rees agreed that Lowe had made a good selection of a stand-in for the lunar module. Deboos and Patron said the Cape could launch the Saturn V by December 6th. After listening to the managers, Deputy Administrator Payne decided to play devil's advocate. Not too long ago, he said, you people were trying to decide whether it was safe to man the third Saturn V, number 503. And now you want to put men on top of it and send them to the moon. Payne then asked for comments. This is what he heard. Werner von Braun said, Once you decided to man 503, it did not matter how far you went. Haig said, There are a number of places in this mission where decisions can be made and risk minimized. Deke Slayton said, It is the only chance to get to the moon before the end of 1969. Deboos said, I have no technical reservations. Rocco Patron said, I have no reservations. Bowman said, It will be a shot in the arm for manned space flight. James said, Manned safety in this and following flights will be enhanced. Richard said, Our lunar capability will be advanced by flying this mission. Snyder said, The plan has my wholehearted endorsement. Gilruth said, Although this may not be the only way to meet our goal, it does increase the possibility. There is always risk, but this is a path of less risk. In fact, the minimum risk of all Apollo plans. Chris Kraft said, Flight operations will have a difficult job here. We need all kinds of priorities. It will not be easy to do, but I have confidence. But it should be a lunar orbit and not a circumlunar flight. And finally, George Lowe said, Assuming Apollo 7 is a success, there is no other choice. So ended the roundtable vote by the men who managed the day-to-day details of the Apollo program to commit the first crew to fly to the moon. Payne was impressed, but he was the first of the three top men who had to be convinced. Webb and Miller would not be so easy to sell. In fact, when Miller called Phillips from Vienna during the meeting and learned of the plan, he was not receptive. He urged Phillips not to come to Vienna. By the next day, August 15th, he had warmed to the idea, but he wanted Phillips to keep it quiet until after Apollo 7. Webb was shocked by the audacity of the proposal and was inclined to say no immediately. After talking with Phillips and Payne, however, he asked for more information. Payne called Willis Shapley, Julian Shear, and Phillips in to draft a text for Webb. Payne's cable to Vienna on August 15th underlined his complete support and included 
an item-by-item schedule of necessary actions. The cable also contained a draft of a statement for Webb to make in Vienna and a draft of a press release to be issued in Washington. Altogether, the cablegram covered seven typewritten pages. After discussing the proposal with Miller, Webb cabled Payne on August 16th that he believed it unwise for any announcements to originate from Vienna. Webb told his deputy to plan for the lunar orbit flight, but to make no public statement about it. In other words, NASA could not talk about anything but an Earth orbital mission. Webb also asked Payne to notify the White House and the President's scientific advisors about any drastic changes in mission planning. This was not what the planners had asked for, but it was certainly more than Webb had given them the previous day. Now they had to figure out how to stay within the constraints set by the administrator and still get everything ready for a lunar orbit mission if the approval came later. Phillips called Lowe, saying he would be in Houston the next day to decide how to handle the situation. Phillips and Haig arrived in Houston on August 17th and met with Gilruth, Lowe, Kraft, and Slayton. The Apollo program leader from Washington said that Webb had given him clear authority to prepare for a December 6th launch to designate it as a Type C Prime mission and to call it Apollo 8. He then ticked off what else had been authorized. They could assign Borman's crew to the flight, equip and train it to meet the December 6th launch, and speak of the flight as Earth orbital while continuing to plan for a lunar orbit mission. The managers were well aware, and Phillips re-emphasized it, that a successful command module qualification flight in Earth orbit by Apollo 7 was the key to the first lunar flight being approved for 1968. Now Houston had to train crews to fly that mission, as well as the others that would follow. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.